So last week we left off with Job in his lament. His friends had come to visit him to attempt to bring him comfort, but upon seeing the depths of his despair and upon realizing that there wasn't really anything for them to say, they sat with him for a week in silence. But then Job speaks in chapter 3, and his friends, his friends just can't accept the words that are coming out of Job's mouth. You see, like Job, Job's friends are very wise men. They, they have people that seek them out for their counsel and their wisdom. And when they hear Job's cry of distress, they, they become distressed. For in their eyes, Job is trying to avoid the hard truths of his situation. They believe that Job is trying to skirt responsibility. In Job chapters 4 through 26, there's a round robin of speeches. One of Job's friends will give a speech to Job, and then Job will respond. And then the next friend will give a speech, to which Job will respond, and etc. Until all three friends have given Job three different speeches. The speeches bring to light the power of words to heal and to harm. It is words of truth and grace that Job longs to hear from his friends. And it is words of a religious system that they give to him. The former would bring gospel comfort and the latter deepens and sharpens his pain. This morning we'll be looking at the first cycle of speeches, briefly going over Eliphaz's speech and Zophar's speech, but taking a bit more time with Bildad's speech. And it is his the opening line of his speech that is our text this morning. Let us read Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Let's end the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would... Perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. So when I was a kid, every Friday night was movie night. My mom and dad would make pizza, and then we'd all pile into our basement and eat pizza and watch a movie together. It was like the one night a week that we might be able to get Coke. It was a big deal, man. Like, that was, it was fantastic. We loved this time. We had a wall of VHS tapes because that's how old I am. And we'd have to go through and like pick out, all right, which, which one of no Netflix, no, we didn't have any of those things, obviously, at that point in time. So it was, all right, which one of these physical copies are we going to be watching this evening? And one of my favorites was an old Disney classic that was based on a Jules Verne novel titled In Search of the Castaways. The plot makes very little sense. And the adventure is pretty outrageous, but that's part of what makes a good movie, right? Now, there's a part of the movie where the adventurers get taken prisoner by a jungle tribe, and then they're going to be sacrificed in a volcano. But first, they're put in a shack on, like, the edge of this cliff, 
to like wait while preparations for the sacrifice are being made. And in this, in this shack, there happens to be this crazy old dude, like this other guy who's also a prisoner, and he's just kind of this crazy old man. And the old guy's continually quoting Bible passages. And as the time draws near for the heroes to be thrown into the volcano, the crazy old man announces that it is time for them to escape and that God will make a way. And when he's questioned as to how God will help them, he pulls out a rope of hair, which is also disgusting, but he pulls out a rope of hair that he has been crafting over the length of his captivity and says, like the good book says, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Maybe you've heard that line before. Maybe you haven't heard that line directly. Maybe you've just heard it in sermons or read books or watched a movie that implied that this is true. That God helps those who help themselves. That God works for the benefit of those who do good works. That good people have good things happen to them. There are plenty of people out there that are espousing this kind of thought. There are many who are out there trying to tell you that God wants you to be rich and God wants to bless you and that we are the ones standing in the way of his favor. We just have to act. We just have to do a little more, give a little more, trust a little more, and then God will respond with all the blessing that he's been withholding. You won't find a a textual biblical reference for the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. So I'm not sure where exactly that crazy old man and his rope of hair got that particular reference. But if I were to hazard a guess, it would have been reading from the speeches of Job's friends. For each of them subscribes to this belief, though they each express it in their own way. The first friend to speak is Eliphaz. He starts off gently, but his speech basically boils down to this. Job, he says, you and I know that God rewards really pious people, people that follow his commands with blessings. That's how the universe works. There's there's a moral order. Good things happen to good people. So stay the course. Better times are ahead. You're a good guy, Job. Just, just stay the course. Don't get mad at God. Keep, keep doing good and your situation will reverse and it'll all work out in the end. And while Eliphaz may have made his case gently, his words totally destroy Job. For that would mean that the inverse is also true, right? So all this bad stuff that happened to Job was because he had done something horribly wrong and now... He was being punished for it. The third friend, we're we're skipping the middle guy for just a second here, but the third friend to speak is Zophar. He's much less gentle in his approach. Zophar says that Job obviously has some hidden sin that he's holding on to and that he needs to give up so that he can lift his face once again before God. Zophar claims that Job is a Pharisee. That Job claims to be clean, suggesting sinless perfection. But Job didn't claim to be clean. He instead was considered blameless. Blameless in this context means to have integrity, to be genuine, to be the same person on the inside as you display to the world on the outside. Zophar accuses Job of being a Pharisee, when in fact he merely claims to be a believer. 
Again, Job is destroyed by the words of his friend, for his friend is now twisting Job's words, searching for some hidden sin that has not been confessed and telling Job that he has earned his suffering and that his suffering will continue until he comes clean and confesses. And while Eliphaz and Zophar both do their fair share of damage to Job, Bildad does a great job of boiling down all of their perspectives into one central thought. In Job 8.3, Bildad asks the question, Does God pervert justice? Does God pervert justice? Bildad is losing his patience with Job. When he first showed up, Job was sitting in an ash heap, scratching his sores with a broken piece of pottery in oblivious suffering and torment. Bildad sat silently with him for seven days, and then the guy opens his mouth and is asking God the question, why? Why is this happening? Why did you let me live if this is where you are going to bring my life? And to Bildad, the answer is clear, just as it is to Eliphaz and Zophar. Does God pervert justice? Another way of asking this question is, is God unfair? Oh, fairness. <laughs> As humans, we have an unrivaled love affair with fairness. We feel fulfilled when we are treated fairly, and we feel utterly enraged when we think that we have been treated unfairly. I don't think I'll ever forget the day in second grade when I wore a yellow sweater to school. It was just before Christmas, and our class went off to the gym to practice the play that we would be putting on as part of our school's Christmas program. Now, the teacher was standing at the, the foot of the stage down on the gym floor, so all she could really see were our feet. She wasn't a particularly tall lady, and the stage was a little high, and so the curtain's in the back, and she could just kind of see our feet underneath the curtains that we were standing behind in the back. Well, there's one kid in our class who was, he was just a little crazy. The kid was out of control. And as soon as the teacher was out of sight, he was running up and down behind that curtain, down the line of kids, pulling ponytails, poking kids in the rib, and just being a complete and utter menace, as second graders are known to do. As the, and the teacher was just standing there yelling from the position on the gym floor that whoever was running around and needed to stop, whoever was causing the chaos just had to stop. Well, this kid decided that he needed to get an idea of where the teacher was located, so he dropped to his stomach and peered out from under the curtain. And all the teacher was able to recognize was his yellow shirt. And so she came up onto the stage and directed anyone who had a yellow shirt to go back to the class and sit in the hall until our class returned to, from practice. And so myself and two others, including the crazy kid, were sent back to sit in the hall. And as we sat there, the principal of the school walked by, and I was completely and utterly ashamed. I want to be known as a good kid, right? Not a troublemaker. And here I was, sitting where no kid, good kid would possibly allow himself to be caught sitting in the hall of shame. And if I had thought that would be the worst of it, I was mistaken for five minutes later after the principal walked by. My mother walked by. I was so embarrassed. And I was so angry. It wasn't fair. I hadn't done anything wrong. I'd been behaving, standing quietly in line, doing what I was supposed to be doing. 
But because I had worn the same color shirt as the crazy kid, here I was in the hall, destroying my reputation and bracing for punishment at home. This is totally unfair. We like the idea of fairness. It appeals to us. It makes sense. It's just so right and and so accurate. So the idea of God being fair, the idea that God does not pervert justice is an appealing one. We can get behind the logic of Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. We like this. Be good, get good, right? Be bad, receive bad. Sounds good to me, we think. So this way, you know, all the people that have hurt us, that have offended us, that have belittled us or abused us, they all are getting what is coming to them. We will have justice, we think, because God is fair. And then, you know, we stop to think about that a little more and and some cracks begin to form in our reasoning and we begin to realize that we are pretty good at remembering, pretty good at focusing on the good things that we do. And we're pretty bad at remembering. We're pretty bad at focusing on the bad things that we do. Because we don't want to remember them. We don't want to let them have power over us, any more power over us than they already do. But the reality is that if God does not pervert justice, then God has not forgotten any of the sin we have done. And so according to this line of logic, there is no amount of good that we can do to outpace the bad that we have done. We will be physically punished for every bad thing we have thought or done ever. It's only fair. So that gossip you shared earlier, that website you visited when no one was looking, those words that came out of your mouth in anger, those words that came out of your mouth for humor, that idol that you've put before your relationship with God, that time or all the times you were driving above the speed limit, the angry thoughts that you had about your spouse or your kids or your parents, the envy that you had for your neighbor, Whatever sin it is that the Holy Spirit is convicting, of, convicting you of right now, if, if this system is true, if this system of fairness that Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad subscribe to, believe in, is true, then we will all be punished for each of these infractions, for it is only fair. You see, this line of thought, this particular religious view, this belief system doesn't believe in undeserved suffering. It believes that all suffering is, in fact, earned and deserved. That sickness that you have or your family has, the loss that you have experienced in life, the suffering that you have gone through, this belief system argues that you deserve all of it. That you are simply being punished by God for the bad that you have done. And man, there are so many that believe this in our world today. The worldly wisdom of Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad has infiltrated every century that man has ever lived. As a Western civilization, we celebrate it with a jolly fat man with a beard that lives in the North Pole as a manifestation of this belief. If you're good, you get good gifts. If you're bad, have some coal, buddy. This idea of fairness is a natural one for us, and since it makes so much sense to us, since it checks so many of the boxes that we like to be checked, we then push this belief on God. If we are so enlightened, so smart, 
then this is just so obvious a conclusion to come to. Then, of course, it must be from God, we think. And so when hardship comes, it leaves us utterly destroyed. For now, through this lens, every bad thing that happened to us is God punishing us for the bad that we have done. And we are left with the heavy, unbearable burden of earning, doing enough good to get back into his favor. And that is a burden, that is a task that is impossible for us. And so we are left with nothing but to despair and to be angry at God for the impossible task that we believe he has set before us. And it begins to make sense why the world is angry at God, doesn't it? But here's the thing. If there is no undeserved suffering, then there can be no redemptive suffering. And that's where Bildad's argument and the whole idea of fairness falls apart. You see, God knew that we could never earn our way back into his good graces, that we could never do enough good to cover over the bad that we have done. And that sin, that bad that we could not make up for, was keeping us from being in the relationship with him, with God, that he wanted to have with us. And so God came up with a plan. He came up with a plan where someone else, someone perfect, someone undeserving, would suffer and die and pay the price for all of the sin that we could not. God sent us Jesus, his son, whom he loved. And Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath, For on Jesus, God piled all of the sin for all time, all of the sin that has ever happened, all of the sin that was currently happening, and all the sin that ever would happen. All of that went on Jesus, and he took that to the cross, and there he died for it in our place. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it, and yet he bore all of it. He bore all of it so that through faith in him, we might have a relationship with God. So that by faith in him, we could be clothed in his righteousness. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see the sin that we have done, the sin that Jesus died for. But instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Does God pervert justice? Absolutely. God perverted justice in the most benevolent way possible. He sent his innocent, perfect son to die in our place. Ultimately, the system that makes sense, the system of fairness, the system that Bildad subscribes to, is a system devoid of grace, and therefore devoid of comfort. It is what is often referred to as a theology of glory, for it gives glory to the works of man, but in a theology of glory there is little comfort. It is in the theology of the cross, the recognition that Christ did the work, and we are the undeserving recipients of the grace that was purchased by his undeserved suffering. Yes, in the cross we can take comfort For it is the symbol of a merciful and gracious God. A God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die in our place. A God who loves you so much that he perverted justice. 
And he did all of this simply because he loves you. Not because you earned it. Not, not because you deserve it. But because he loves you. And so as we wrestle with stories like the story of Job or the stories of people that we know and love or the stories that have taken place in our own lives, as we wrestle with the stories of undeserved suffering, let that suffering reflect back to the undeserved suffering on the cross. And in that, we can take comfort. For Jesus did not stay there. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and someday we too those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus, we too will rise from the suffering of this world and no longer know pain or tears. There is hope for the hurting. What a wonderful, fantastic, and loving God we serve. Amen.